And now, coming to you live from the Waldorf Room, high atop the legendary Cood Street Motel 6, it's Gary K. Wolf and Jonathan Strahan with award-winning writer and critic James Bradley on the Cood Street Podcast. See, I can do it that way. That's more... That, that makes me feel more relaxed. I'm calm now. Well, I mean, I was going to do this thing because James has agreed to join us. Good morning, James, and welcome. Good morning, Jonathan. Good morning, Gary. Lovely to be here. <laughs> and I, I thought that it was worth introduce you know, giving some context to, 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 you know, to James because sometimes we just throw people out into the, you know in, in, into the pit and never actually sort of give their background you know with James being a novelist and a critic you know even though I noticed it has been six years since the last novel James <laughs> I've published a lot of stories in that time and I've got a novel on the way good is it finished no <laughs> Was that the wrong question to ask? It's the wrong question. No, no, it's all right. It's going all right. It's actually, actually, the one thing we should, we should I, I, I just say is, and I have it here. In fact, I can see it's to hand. Is obviously one of the big things which delayed a new novel was the Penguin Book of the Ocean. That must yes. have been a lot of work and very time consuming. It was. I mean, and I mean, it's, you know, there's a series of challenges with doing that kind of book about kind of anthologizing, which I'm sure I don't need to tell you about. But that that process of trying to resolve what it is you're doing, trying to find the work, and then and trying to make it all sit together, it's a big job. Yeah, and you especially did a- one that, especially one that sounds as definitive as that. And I know Penguin has done this, but I would not know where to start. Uh, you're going to do the Penguin Book of the Sky? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, look, I I tried not to allow allow myself to be foxed by the definitiveness of it, and I mean, I in a sense, I I had a head start with that one, so I worked for quite a long time on it book about the Pacific, which never came together. And so I'd done a lot of the reading in a sense beforehand. I had a good sense of the field before I began. Um, uh, But I was also, when I set out to do it, I wanted to do a book which in a sense wasn't that kind of weighty, definitive tome. It was about trying to look at the idea of the ocean and look at it, I think particularly from a kind of southern perspective, because one of the things that becomes really clear when you read all of the ocean literature and the kind of selections of it is that there's a very kind of northern slant in it. And I wanted one that was very much about that kind of Australian experience of the big warm oceans on either side and of the Antarctic Mm. Ocean, um, and which kind of gathered that in in a way that I think the previous collections that have been done hadn't. There are some fantastic collections. I mean, the Jonathan Raban Book of the Sea, is a brilliant book, you know. Really? So, and I, and, but it is a kind of definitive book as well. And I didn't see my task as trying to replicate what he'd done. I'd seen it as trying to create something that was a kind of coherent whole off to one side of that. So let me ask you a question because it's, it's sort of germane as to why we have you on the podcast. I mean, your work obviously has a strong strong mainstream connection. I mean, up, up for the Miles Franklin Literary Award, which here in Australia is a very prestigious literary award, the New South Wales Premier Literary Award, the Commonwealth Writers' Prize, all these sorts of things, and then winning the Pascal Prize for Criticism earlier this year and getting named Australian Critic of the Year, for which congratulations. Thank you. <laughs> I mean, some serious congratulations. That's, that's, that's enormous. It was lovely. Where does your interest in genre come and the, I guess, the intersection between genre and the mainstream? Um, well, I mean, I guess there's two strands to that. One is, I mean, I always have this slightly schizophrenic life because I do a lot of critical writing. I probably would have called it reviewing till I won an award for being a critic. <laughs> I now feel I probably have to call it critical writing. Um, uh-huh. uh, I've always been a little uncomfortable with calling myself a critic. Um, and the other is that, you know, I, I write myself, you know. So, I mean, I, I write fiction and non-fiction and I used to write poetry. So, I mean, there's this kind of slightly schizophrenic thing where I'm coming at it from two directions. Uh, In terms of my own work, my second novel, The Deep Field, is basically science fiction. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think there's always an argument about whether it's science fiction or science fictional. Um, And I've written quite a few, you know, fantasy science fiction kind of stories over the years. Um, And I guess that, that for me comes out of a... You know, I often think these debates about what science fiction, what isn't, aren't very relevant to writers. You know, I mean, I, my question is never, is this science fiction when I'm writing something, is does this work? Is this mm-hmm. believable? Does it make narrative sense? You know, and, and, and once you've made those kinds of judgments, you know, whether it happens to be on this planet or another is kind of relevant. But then as a, as a critic, I'm really interested in, you know, I've got a long-standing interest in science fiction. I've read it for a great many years. 
And I guess I'm one of these people who until probably five or ten years ago used to kind of firewall my two sets of interests. So I had a kind of interest in mainstream literary kind of writing, but I also had an interest in science fiction and fantasy. And, and in a sense, I didn't let the two cross over. And, and there came a point where I thought, well, first of all, this is a ridiculous apartheid to be maintaining you know, why don't I start writing about and talking about the stuff that I'm interested in as well mm. as the stuff that, you know, I kind of think is respectable. Um, and also I think that was partly because there is something quite profound going on at the moment with the changing nature of reading, the changing nature of publishing, the changing nature of the culture generally, where a lot of those kind of genre boundaries are in flux mm. and that is generating some really interesting collisions and tensions. And I wanted to kind of write about them and explore them, I think. I think you've done that admirably and it's a, in a career which I frankly envy. Uh, the genre boundaries exist within, um, within the critical uh, community as well. And there are probably a handful of people I could think of, well, more than one or two in England. In the States, we've got uh, Michael Durda, for example, uh, who, again, became a mainstream uh, a belletristic essayist, essentially reviewing for the Washington Post and eventually winning Pulitzer Prizes, whose background is whose background and appreciation for science fiction is much like yours is, I believe. Mm. Uh, Dirt is, I think Dirt has actually just given up his gig at the Washington Post the other week. Uh, I might be wrong about that. Uh, well, he's writing for the American Scholar now, as a matter of fact. Yeah, yeah, yeah. he's terrific. But I mean, he's. I, I think he is, in, yeah, you're right, he's an interesting example of what I'm talking about. I mean, there's people like Lev Grossman, you know, I mean, there are yeah. there are others who are kind of sitting on this kind of odd juncture. And it's actually a really interesting place to be because it allows you to kind of pick the best from both worlds and, you know, work your way through them. I worry a little bit that it ends up removing you from both worlds a bit. But, you know, there's something nice about being able to kind of range widely like that. Well, I, I can see that it can, but does it also give you uh, a different perspective? Because... One of the things, I mean, obviously, you're, you're well aware that the science fiction fields probably spends as much time, if not more time, than the worst hypochondriac in any doctor's surgery checking its own temperature and making sure it's not dying. I'd have to say it's not alone in that. I, I, <laughs> I, I, read, I read the Kincaid and the Ian Sales pieces recently, and I, I heard the podcast mm -hmm. with Paul the other week. Um, uh, <laughs> I have to say, it was a very familiar anxiety that was being rehearsed you know i mean you hear the same kind of thing being rehearsed all the time in kind of literary mm -hmm. magazines and literary supplements about the death of literature the dying nature of the novel you know the, the end of real writing and you know it seems to me the novel is a form that's always been in crisis that's part of its strength you know but one of the responses I sometimes have to that whole argument, you know, or the whole fact of this ongoing discussion of the impending death of, of, of the genre or whatever else, is that maybe it's part of the mechanism that keeps it healthy. It's the part of the mechanism of introspection, or you know, so that that, that has it checking itself to make sure that it's doing better. Yeah, and I think that's right. I mean, I would say that about both, you know, both genres. I mean, I I, I wonder a bit about this term genre because it seems to me that you know, I mean. A lot of literary fiction is highly generic. Mm -hmm. You know, a fair chunk of science fiction and fantasy is highly generic. But all of them are fields that are so broad that I'm never quite clear that the term makes much sense. You know, the yeah. line between Kidge Johnson and Alistair Reynolds is fairly wide. Yeah, do you know what I mean? So yeah. trying to work yeah. out, calling that a genre always seems to me to be a, a, a tricky thing. But, yeah, I mean, it's kind of what I said. I mean, I think that there is this kind of constant sense of crisis around literary production, you know, but that is part of what keeps it healthy. I mean, it's, you know, everyone's always in a panic and that's what drives the search for the new, I think. You know, I mean, surely if we were all thought it was wonderful and brilliant, that would be the quickest route to creative death that there was. And if it, yeah, if it were comfortable, if, who would want to read comfortable science fiction, I suppose is the question. <laughs> oh, I think uh, many people would like to read comfortable well, science fiction. I think fiction. you're right. I think you're but right. I think, and I, I can't even criticize them particularly. I'm not interested in criticizing them. But what I would say is if all of science fiction or all of literature was comfortable, then you'd have a significant problem. Mm. That would be the, be the mm. real issue. I, I guess what uh, I, no, Look, John, I think the flip side is true. If all of it was uncomfortable and mm. blindingly new at every second, it would also be unreadable. You know, I mean, there's a constant... 
movement within mm-hmm. things. I mean, it always seems to me that all books are doing something where there is a kind of generic recycling part of the process and then there is a part of the process which is about innovation and some books are very heavy on innovation very low on generic recycling some are very high on generic recycling and reassurance very low mm-hmm. on innovation but most books are kind of a bit of both you know i think uh, i had two thoughts was i interrupting someone no 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 no, no. okay uh because when you were, you were talking about the, the the death of literature being something which does recycle itself since i'm chaucer i'm sure uh the two other things maybe uh, involved with that. One is that when people talk about something, the death of something like science fiction, they may not be thinking of it in terms of literature or genre. They may be thinking of the science fiction enterprise, of, of the project of science fiction that we're all involved in, and it's not as exciting as it, it was. That could be part of the aging reader, as a matter of fact. And when I think to other, think of other people uh, who've talked about science fiction uh, losing interest, what they ended up really talking about was their losing interest in reading science fiction. Yeah, and I think there's very much a thing about, you know, if you're someone who reads a lot, you hit middle age, you know, of course I'm not middle-aged, uh, <laughs> but I mean, I do think you're middle-aged, and there comes a point where you've read thousands and thousands of books of the kind that you love, and they stop seeming new to you. You know, you start to feel bored with what you've got in front of you, and I think it's very easy to escalate that into a... a a kind of systemic crisis. I mean, I think there's a real tendency of people to escalate their own personal responses into systemic crises. And uh, it's something you need to be a bit wary of doing. Well, I, I think also, well, I agree. I think also when you uh, analyze these systems or attempt to rev- you know, review them and consider them, you're generally lo- looking at a small subset of whatever is being published at any time, just as an individual. And so the fact that it does or doesn't hit your personal you know, metric for, for success doesn't mean that the field itself is actually in crisis. Uh, I mean, I vacillate greatly on the state of the health of the field. Some days I think it's, in, you know, it's not sort of being as innovative and um, imaginative and productive as it could be, that it's not uh, engaging with the problems of the day, etc., etc. And other days I think we're having a great time. You know, and it all seems to depend on the book I happen to have read or, or you know, the, the story or whatever else. You know, uh, this year seemed to start off very strongly to me. I was almost taken aback to get caught up in a discussion of exhaustion when I'd re- after I'd read 2312, mm-hmm. for example, which seemed to me to be a thoroughly engaged book. And yes, it has its flaws, but it's still a really strong book. And I mean, we've emailed separately, James, about you know, the idea that there actually are a bunch of really strong books out there right now, uh, most notably this year's Cause to Celeb uh, Empty Space by M. John Harrison. Um, and I'm, I'm curious as to your feeling right now, someone who is reading quite extensively in the field, really, as, as to where you think the field is right now and how it is engaging or how, how it's evolving, how, what its health status is, if you like. Oh, look, I'd be interested to hear Gary's view on that, actually. Look, I mean, I think from the outside, from the semi-inside, wherever I am, I actually think it looks really robust. But I do wonder whether... You know, I mean, I think there is, uh, let me start somewhere slightly separate, which is if you are in Mm. the kind of literary field, there have been a series of books recently, which there's the kind of fashion for apocalyptic fiction, but there's also been a series of books like Lauren Groff's Arcadia, A Visit to the Goon Squad, um, uh, others are going to slip my head at the moment, but there's been a series of them, which seem to me to at least partly be about a kind of grief for the future. Um, you know, they are about a kind of loss of belief, I guess, in the possibilities of the future partly. I think that is largely about climate change, to be perfectly honest. Um, but I suspect that something similar is going on in science fiction. And you've got a thing where a lot of science fiction has been underpinned by a particular kind of narrative of progress for a really long time. You know, and it's one about space. It's one about, you know, um, it's about technological progress. It's about a series of things like that. And you've got a couple of things going on. One is a sense that we are now in the future, and it's that kind of Gibsonian response that brought him back to right pattern recognition, that sense that you can no longer imagine a future more weird multiplex than the one we li- the present we live in. But it's also that, in a sense, the futures 
the futures of science fiction 30 or 40 years ago are not the futures we imagine now. You know, space is not going to be what we thought it was going to be. We're probably not going to find warp drives. We're not going to fly to other star systems, all of that kind of thing. And that's, I suspect, has fed, it has fed a, a kind of loss of belief in that kind, in that kind of future. You know, so it's, it's kind of what I think makes interesting, makes books like Paul McCauley's Quiet War books, 2312, um, the most recent Alistair Reynolds books really interesting because they are about trying to imagine past this kind of crisis of climate change and this loss of a narrative about space and find a different kind of narrative of the future to look at. You know, they're about a kind of reimagining of the future. And I suspect that part of what is going on in that kind of very classically conceived idea of science fiction is a kind of renegotiation of what the future might be. And we're kind of in the middle of that, which is probably why some of that stuff looks a bit wonky at the moment. I'd, look, I'd be really interested to know what Gary thought about that, actually. Well, I, 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 there's something that you said in uh, in your review of 2312, James, that I thought was fascinating, and I've been thinking about since, was you're absolutely right, that there are uh, highly imaginative ways of engineering the solar system. And Jonathan and I have talked more than once on the podcast about the sort of retreat to the solar system of a lot of science fiction. But accompanying that, as as you pointed out, in a novel like 2312 or in Paul McCuller, I believe in some of Al- Alistair Reynolds, the Earth, the, 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 the horrible future for the Earth comes to fruition. Uh, in mm. other words, you do have a dystopian, destroyed, globally melted Earth. And at the same time, that becomes a motivation for escaping into the, um, into the solar system. It's like having your cake and melting it, too. <laughs> mm-hmm. Uh, but it was interesting, isn't it? Because if you think about, you know, the, in a sense, the future we imagined 30 years ago is one where we expand outwards through the stars. Mm-hmm. It's probably becoming clear to us now that that's not going to happen. But I don't know that we know what, you know, life in our solar system looks like in 10,000 years or 100,000 years. I mean, those kind of really big spaces of time that led to those kind of galactic empires, if we're still in the solar system. Did you know what I mean? And that's one of the things I think a number yeah. of these books are trying to think through, you know. Now, it's part of that because as as humans, we just don't really emotionally understand orders of magnitude. That, that These scales just can't really mean anything to us at all. So we can't, you know, we, we, we have a failure of imagination. I suspect that's part of it. I mean, I, I was struck. I heard an example this week on order, orders of mag- magnitude, the difference between a million and a billion. Where it would co- co- it would take you eight if this was correct it would take you eight days to count to a million but 30, 30 months to count to a billion mm. and you're kind of going really or is it thirty years something like that and you're going oh my god that's ridiculous and so you talk about you know where will we be in a hundred thousand years well we weren't anywhere a hundred thousand years ago I, I am also struck you know sort of when we talk about I mean I'm very convinced that the crisis of the future and imagining the future is the possibly the fundamental issue right right now in front of science fiction. Um, so I was struck yesterday to see Carl Schroeder, who you may be familiar with, uh, tweeting yesterday about the terraformability of this planet they found around Alpha Centauri, and how you know we could absolutely look to pop, you know to sort of to populate that area. And it struck me as being completely impractical. I mean, yes, you could probably m- uh, map together an engineering case for it. But it seemed like an unimaginable thing to actually do because of the the realities of the distance and the time scales and everything else, and why on earth you would do it. And you know maybe, and that that the, all of this scientific knowledge we've got over the last quarter century has stymied us now. I think in some areas it has. I mean, I, I, this goes back a little bit to Neil Stevenson's project. So let's mm. let's reinvent the great engin- inspiring engineering projects that we used to invent. Um, I think science fiction has basically moved moved past engineering uh, as as its dominant uh, mode of imagination. And you do have a lot of the you have, there's the Jack Vanceian mode of, of of what I think of as a discontinuous future. It's so remote from us that we don't even bother to think how we get from here to there. It's it's billions of years in the future. Uh, and there are the near future uh, uh, sort of dystopian projections. But um, but I think what what the the term uh, Gibson, to some extent, changed the terms of discussion, and I think Egan is going, is continuing to change the terms of discussion, in that uh, you know, engineering uh, is less interesting than information. Mm. Mm. 
let me let me ask you a parallel question. Do you think we're engaged that science fiction is engaging enough with right now? I mean, uh, do either of you read Arc magazine, the, the new scientist uh, science fiction magazine? I don't. Yes. Did you read the Tim Mons or Morn story in, that was in Arc Three? No, I haven't read the third one yet. It's interesting, mostly because it completely engages with social media technology. It engages with the flash mobs, all this sort of thing. And yes, Larry Niven wrote about flash mobs back in the 60s and everything else, or the early 70s. But even now in, in science fiction, you don't see a lot of that being taken up. It's like the cyberpunk mantle was either, you know, was sort of set aside. And mm. you know, Gibson did his thing where he said, you know, the future is all, you know, the, the present is unimaginably weird. And so writing about the future is difficult. But we don't engage a lot with the impact of what is around us now. I mean, I know it's difficult to see what the next iteration of stuff will be. But science fiction currently seems to step back from that. I mean, even in uh, some of the books that we've cited today, there's not as much of it as you would think. It may be true. I think uh, one of the things that happens when you go back and look at science fiction well, from the 50s or 40s, uh, it's always fascinating that you know, the year 2000 was always a, a cutout, cutoff date. I mean, we're living absolutely in that future. And of course, it doesn't look anything like the future that, that they imagined. And in most cases, it looks um, a lot more like the 1950s and 1960s than we wanted it to. Sometime in the early, speaking of the New Scientist, it wasn't the New Scientist, but some magazine in the late 50s, um, did a um, survey of a, a, a large number of scientists and social philosophers about the future of the American city. Uh, what will the city look like in the year 2000? And they, and we ended up with uh, uh, basically uh, scientists, ecologists, urban planners, politicians, and so forth, coming up with visions that might have might as well have come from Heinlein or Asimov. The one person who absolutely turned out to be pretty much correct was Jane Jacobs, who. Uh, went on to write The Death and Life of Great American Cities a year later, in which she said the cities will be pretty much what they are now, only larger and shabbier. <laughs> mm. You're not trying to argue that the future will be larger and shabbier, will you, Gary? The future already is larger and shabbier. <laughs> but how can that be true? I mean, you know, we, whenever somebody gets pessimistic about the future, and I certainly understand why people get concerned about climate change and everything else, and I share the concern about those things. But we're still at the, sort of the pointy end of 3,000 years of progress, aren't we? I mean, you know, we're not dying the way we used to. We, on average, live better, et cetera, et cetera. Is, is the present really so bleak to you? I didn't say bleak. I said a little <laughs> bit shabbier. That's the point that Jane Jacobs was making is that cities don't change that rapidly over time. That structurally, London is still laid out the way it was laid out in the 14th century with better transportation, but those mm -hmm. crazy streets are still there. Yeah. yeah, I mean, and it is partly about that kind of very strong, uh, I guess, kind of eschatological edge in a lot of science fiction, this notion that there will be a kind of moment transition to some kind of imagined future, when in fact the reality is it'll probably be kind of the same, but bigger and brighter and more complex. I mean, you look at, uh, I reread Neuromancer not long ago, and one of the things that's really striking about Neuromancer is, you know, the sprawl actually exists. It's Mumbai, or mm -hmm. it's mm -hmm. Shanghai, or it's Guangzhou, you know, it, it's kind of there. It's already there, you know, this kind of huge, interconnected, incredibly complex, densely populated, you know, highly technological, yet highly um, still untechnological logical world i mean it exists we, it, we live in it you know it, it just happens not to be in north america you know is that also part of the you know the challenge for science fiction and possibly literature generally to engage with the non-western future i uh, look i think deeply so i mean i i'm i'm very struck by how American and uh, kind of Anglo, our imaginings of the future are. I mean, I think it's a great pity that you're not reading more more stuff out of China and India and places like that. But by the same token, I have to say, I don't know that the traditions that they're operating in would necessarily produce books that would look like, I mean, I think when people talk about that often, they're talking about getting a book that looks a bit like what we would read, except it's set in Mumbai. Yeah. And I'm not sure that exists. I mean, that's obviously to some degree what Ian MacDonald attempted with uh, his series of books, uh, with uh, River of Gods in Brazil, and with the one that's uh, the title I always forget, the third one, which was the best of them. 
Dervish House. House, yeah. Uh, but there's not a lot of. But I. But I don't. I agree. I, I've wondered on occasion how you get. And I know you've got to, got to go looking for it and everything else. But how you get. African, and I realize Africa, just even saying African is an incredible generalization, but science, what we would recognize as science fiction out of Asia, out of Africa, out of South America, and whether we are being unrealistic to expect them to, to create fiction in that tradition when it may or may not be what, that, what you would get there. And I guess how do we find and identify what would be a non-Western vision of the future and engage with it? Because I'd be very interested to see it done, but it's done very seldom. And there's some practical difficulties, but it's not something we've yet come to terms with completely, I think, or at all, really. I think when you have a writer, I mean, there, there are a few, but the ones that I can think of that write what we would recognize as science fiction, like, say, Amitav Ghosh, are mm. essentially Western-trained writers in a, yeah. in a way, yeah. writing English-style novels. Yeah. Which was kind of my point. You know, I mean, and Gosh is an interesting example. I mean, you look at a book like The Calcutta Chromosome, which is a mm. very strange book. But, it's an odd know, book. Sorry? It's a very odd book, I agree. It's a very odd book. I actually, you know, oddly enough, I read a, another book recently, which I thought was very good, by James Meek, who's a very odd English writer which is also all about malaria research. I was wrecking my brain trying to think of another book that was about <laughs> malaria research <laughs> other than those two. Um, but the, the Meek book's called The Heart Broke In, and I suspect it's one of these books that sits on the edge of science fiction as well. It's a kind of large, very strange social novel sitting on the edge of science fiction. Um, it's actually really interesting. But, but yeah, I mean, I would be – I'd agree. I think most of them are essentially Western writers happen to be operating – Particularly those Indian writers in other in other cultures, you know. But I mean, I'd be I, I'm curious. A country like Brazil, you know, you'd expect it to have traditions that tied it to tied it to many of the the things that we would recognise. Yet you don't see much science fiction coming out of Brazil. There know? is there is Brazilian science fiction. I mean, uh, I I'm, well, I'm, let me rephrase that. You don't see much coming out and coming into England. English, being translated. No, not in English. As a matter of fact, no. I have an entire book about Brazilian science fiction by Elizabeth Ginway, and it's a fairly healthy tradition, but none of which we've seen in uh, in translation. Yeah. yeah, which I think is a pity, because I'd be really interested to see it. Yeah. I'm straining my, my mind to think of who the author was that... I mean, obviously there's a book of, of uh, there was Mexican and South American uh, fantasy and science fiction published by Small Beer last year. That's true. But it got very little press, really. Unfortunately, um, for reasons I'm not really clear on, because it had a, a number of very fine stories in it, but it's a uh, rarity. There was, yeah, there was an anthology from Wesley in uh, about three or four years ago called Cosmos Latinos, a very strong anthology. And again, again, probably partly because it's a university press, did not get uh, the kind of widespread attention that it it deserves. The science fiction European Hall of Fame that James and Catherine Morrill. Had some fascinating stuff in it. I don't think it did as well as it should have. But that's always going to be the case. Sorry, I'm going to have to break off for two seconds. Sure, yeah. <laughs> and I've got to. Oh, this is the point where now that James broken off, I can say that I've been racking my brains, Gary, for the name of the author that Small Beer published that um, Le Guin published. Uh, translated. And Angel and Angelica Gor Gorodisher. Oh, because she's brilliant. Oh, and She's we don't absolutely see brilliant. Yes. And you, of course, have read uh, another um, author that uh, Small Beer are bringing to North America in uh, as a fantasy writer, uh, Sophia Samatar. Sophia Samatar is um, somebody who I think actually, again, is somebody who spent uh, a chunk of her life in Northern Africa, but is, you know, at the moment is currently a graduate student at uh, the University of Wisconsin at Madison, and basically wrote the novel, I think, out of a sensibility that is international, but it's somebody who also, the same thing could be, tried of, could be said of Nadia Korfor, it's a sensibility of somebody who knows a lot of science fiction and fantasy, knows the Western tradition, knows the Anglo-American tradition, and make use of that. Yeah. Um, some, I'm also, I've received in the email, I think within the last few days, an anthology of African science fiction uh, yes. that someone put together. Yes, you absolutely yeah. did. And if you'll forgive the, the, the sort of uh, the, the key clicking for a second, I can tell you what it was because we really need to. Uh, it sounds fascinating. Yes. Uh, 
This is like the, the like, least professional. Just like Roberto Bellano, who are doing something which I would have said in many ways is not a million miles from science fiction, operating in that in that Latin or Spanish mm. in the Spanish-speaking world. Yeah. Well, th- we're just saying that there's been a bit of it around, and um, there are a number of books sort of being published. I know, and, and Gary was just saying quite rightly that um, a Zimbabwean editor, Ivor. H- Hartman has just yeah. published a book called Afro SF Science Fiction by African Writers, which I we just got a copy of a few days ago, and that that's coming out this December, uh, and I'm very glad you brought it up, actually, Gary. Uh, but that and that features a lot of names that aren't familiar to us. So can I ask you a question, Jonathan? I mean, when you're the, doing your best of the years, are these books that you look at to pull stuff from, or when, yeah, absolutely, yes. If, mm. if I can find some way to do so and if I'm made aware of the book, because the real issue, as I've rabbited on on this podcast over 119 episodes every now and again, is finding stuff, becoming aware of it. Um, and people sometimes are too shy to sort of say, hey, you know, were you aware this happened? So, for example, I had, I had a friend of mine, Nick Givers, who's from um, South Africa, who got in touch with me about this particular book. Otherwise, I would never have known it had come out, I must confess. Uh, probably the only name in, on the table of contents I know is Nadia Korafor, so it would be easy to not become aware of it. And I'm conf- well, I suspect strongly that there is a lot of non-European or non-Western, for, for a better way of describing it, science fiction that I don't, I'm not aware of. Uh, and translation is an issue, but it's not the sole issue. Some of it's just finding out about it, because. Short fiction has become a different currency in the tw- in 2012, I think. You know, 20, at one point, short fiction was this thing that was part of your, you know, the author's revenue stream. It was also part of the, the way they built their reputation. They learned their craft. And even if there were some people who were more naturally attuned to writing short fiction, uh, nonetheless, most writers would try it, if only as a, as a learning thing. Now it's a promotional giveaway. And that means that if you don't come across that promotional path you never see see or hear of it and so it's it's very difficult now i mean i remember when i first really actively started paying attention to numbers uh locus was estimating there were three thousand short stories published every year in the science fiction field and that was western science fiction stories Mm -hmm. i would recommend i would estimate that number has probably tripled and so finding them is almost impossible. And so it, one of the re- things that makes having these multiple bests of the year, which frustrate people somewhat, around valuable, is the chance to have multiple catches. Uh, but I also understand that one of the frustrations is that they can be quite similar, and you'd hope that if they were catching stuff, they would, wouldn't overlap as much. But it's an imperfect world. Does that, yeah. does that answer the question? It does. <laughs> I just, I'm not sure I'm like talking around it. It's something that I'm not going to say that it haunts me, but it's something that's very much on my mind on a regular basis, you know. Um, and sometimes I'm, I'm aware that your own reading bias becomes an issue. I mean, I read the book that Small Beer published, uh, which, which was Three Messages and a Warning, uh, edited by Eduardo Jimenez Mayo and Chris Brown, which came out earlier this, at the beginning of this year, actually. And there was a lot I liked on it, but liked about it. But there was a different kind of narrative tradition at play, and I'm not sure that I engage with it as as well as I could or should. A lot of it's not as plot based, I guess. And so you, you find yourself looking for what you consider to be strong stories, when quite possibly you're not bringing the right tools to the to the table. Does that sound like a reasonable thing to say? I mean, that, that, that's, what, that's what worries me, that I'm judging these, these stories with the wrong set of tools. It could be. I don't know. I, uh, hmm? Go ahead. Hello? No, I'm here. There's just a crisis unfolding in the background. <laughs> that's oh, that's fine. I mean, you can take care of that. I mean, I can, I can no, 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 it. It's under control. It's under control. Okay. <laughs> I, th- I think another problem, which is which is difficult for me to say because I don't know, but I've talked to a, a friend of mine who, who's French, who, tran- who translates English into French, but his complaint about native French science fiction, he was working on a magazine called Galaxies, which I don't know if it's still printing or not, was that a lot of what he saw being written in Europe were imitations of American and English science fiction. 
uh, as opposed to what he would like to have seen, which would have been the kind of narrative traditions you're talking about, uh, or somebody who can, maybe somebody like you mentioned, Bolano, for example. Um, I, when, I, when I look at the uh, massive need that we have for more uh, international science fiction, all I can think of is I wish, we're, I wish, I wish Borges were still alive, because he was actually bridging that gap. He mm. actually knew his way around science fiction. He knew his way around Argentinian literature, and he knew his way around uh, the the entirety of world literature. Um, and I don't know if anybody who's anybody outside of the Anglo-American axis is in a position to do that now. No, I mean, I look. It's one of the things I admire about people like Livy Tatar and Lauren Bukes. I mean, I thought one thing saying Lauren was really interesting was to use her success with Zoo City to bring a number of other South African writers out of South Africa to a global audience, which I think has been mm -hmm. really good. You know, and people like Livy Tatar are working very hard to, to promote work from the non-Anglo spirit, or whatever mm -hmm. you want to call it. I, I also, you know, to kind of absolve people a little bit, I do think it's difficult. I mean, speaking as an Australian, one of the things one of the problems you have is if you're an Australian reader or writer or critic, you need to understand the Australian scene, mm -hmm. the American scene, the British scene, and something about world literature. That's actually a big ask. You know, if you're an American, you know, you kind of yes. need to understand American and I guess the rest of the world a bit. You know, and <laughs> it, 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 do you know what I mean? It, it creates... I mean, the, the, the kind of the need to be on top of a pile of different traditions, particularly if you're someone from a country like, you know, Australia or Spain or Brazil or somewhere like that, means that you're having to kind of stay on top of a number of things at once. So it's probably, in a sense, not surprising often that stuff slips, slips out of your grip. There's only so many hours in the day. For I, I guess the thing is, though, is there enough evidence that, and I absolutely put myself in this group, is there enough evidence that we're trying to engage with that problem or that issue you know, to become more aware or does the evidence still look as though we're basically sitting within our comfort zones and not pushing it as hard as we could because i mean i think we're sitting in outside our comfort zones i mean i look i i, I don't know <laughs> look, i okay. guess the question is are, yeah. are people like us in a position to do that i mean essentially the there's a comfort zone and there's also an economic zone. And what I'm told again and again um, is that translating fiction is simply not profitable to a publisher. Uh, translating complex uh, English language science fiction into other languages is, is more profitable, but still not as profitable. And trying to translate, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, French or... or, or um, or, or German, which are the two most familiar cultures, I suppose, to the Anglo-American tradition, even that doesn't make a great deal of uh, money. Uh, Andreas Eschbach had one novel that I read, and I was fascinated by it. I thought it was very good, The Carpet Makers. Carpet Makers? Mm -hmm. Is that it? I think so. And uh, from what I uh, heard talking to, I think, uh, somebody at Tor, it just was not feasible to do more of those books. Mm. I mean, I'm not trying to exculpate. Anglo readers who I don't think read widely enough. But I mean, one of the things you hear said in literary publishing is that you get a very large flow of books from written in English from America, Canada, England, Australia, which go into countries like Germany and France. You get very little literature coming out of Germany and France and into yes. the Anglosphere. But one of the things I've heard pointed out a couple of times is that, of course, the Anglosphere is, you know, what's five six hundred thousand people you know france has a population of about 80 million i think off the top of my head and i think germany is about a hundred you know but what that means is that those countries are servicing quite large and highly literate readerships but don't have anything like the numbers to produce the books that we do whereas we produce lots of books of our own do you know what i mean it's one of those kind of it's one of those things about cultural flows are also as gary said economic flows you know and there's a level at which it probably makes a lot more sense to translate an English book into German than to translate a German book into English, as he says. I mean, look, I'm not trying to exculpate us. As no. Although it, it, I mean, it I does think, I think Anglo readers read much too narrowly, you know. I, I think that's true. And every once in a while, uh, it does strike me that when a major uh, blockbuster kind of novel gets translated into English um, over the last 50 years or so, it's 
fairly commonly got some science fiction or fantasy element. I mean, if you think about uh, the Tin Drum or Perfume or The Name of the Rose, uh, th those became major bestsellers in translation, and, and, and each has substantial genre elements. I wonder whether that's about them also being books that are often abstracted from a definite social context. You know, I mean, I understand the Tin Drum, in a sense, isn't abstracted from a clear social context, but you can read it without understanding the society that it comes from, in a sense. You know, you can read Perfume as a yeah. kind of... Do you know what I mean? And so perhaps it is, it is about that. It's about, again, about not engaging with those societies or not needing to engage with them. Right. I think uh, I'm just, right. sorry, it's just an, a, a thought. It's not, uh, I'm not sure how strongly I'd argue <laughs> what I just said. Well, actually, let me ask you for your opinion on something, because it's a book that you've reviewed and that I've, I've read and uh, discussed, because you talked about abstracting from a social context. What's your view on Willow Wilson's book, Aleph the Unseen? Um, has Gary read it? I've not read it. I, I, I've uh, got it on my list because I'm hearing a lot about it now. Mm. Look, I really liked it. Um, I enjoyed it very much. I think it's a really interesting book in a number of ways. Like a lot of these books, I mean, like, say, The Dervish House, mm -hmm. I'd be very curious to know what an Arabic reader thought of it um, for several reasons. One is for a sense of how accurate a lot of it is. But also I wonder a little bit about the removal in a sense, I mean, it's one of these books that's kind of political but sort of oddly fantastic at the same time, yet I'm not sure that it's fantastic in a way that removes the political element into a kind of allegorical or metaphorical field. Yet I wonder whether it's also at some level perhaps not quite engaged strongly enough with the politics on the ground or the reality, I guess the reality of the politics. But, I mean, I think it's an enormously entertaining and vivid and it's a very striking book, you know, because I mean, it's one of these books where you, you pick it up and you think, well, I haven't actually read this book before, you know, yeah. which is which is always a terrific feeling. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I, I wonder a little bit about the kind of removal of it into an unnamed country. Yeah. Do, do you know what I mean? I mean, I wonder whether that that somehow muffles its impact as a kind of political tract. I mean, one thing I think is very interesting about it is that it's essentially a religious book. Yeah. You know, in the sense that it is a book that is both embodying a kind of religious debate within itself, but which is actually at the end of the day, you know, kind of about trying to push a kind of religious vision of the world. Push is the wrong word, I think, but, you know, it is trying to give shape to a religious vision of the world. Yet it's been seized upon with great glee by all kinds. I mean, it is as much a religious book as something like Narnia. Yeah. You know, yet somehow that seems to have been lost on almost everyone who reads it. Yeah, I've got to say, when I started reading the first thing, on a very superficial, I admit, immediately level that struck me was the, the way it blends from what appears to be a science fiction novel in its opening 20% into what is clearly a fantasy novel. And, and that was that was the point I started to engage on it, and I read it, and I got to the end of it, and I enjoyed it, and I thought about the politics of it. Um, I did feel, without going into details for people who have not read the book yet, that there's a plot point in the last 10% of the book where Wilson makes a decision about the life or death of a character that I thought was maybe soft-pedaled a little bit, and then maybe she made a less confrontational decision than she might have. And then this whole issue, which I wasn't engaging with as I read the book initially, about where it was set, about it being set in a imaginary Arab state as opposed to a real one and how that impacted on it engaging with decisions. When that was flagged to me, then I really did begin to wonder about whether that, as you say, quite accurately, I think, muffled uh, some of its impact. Mm. Um, Look, I also think it's it's on a series of things that, are clearly extremely complex to the people who are living them. Yes. And I don't feel in a position to judge mm. what it's saying, what it's doing about them, you know. So I would be really, you know, there are people I, there are people who know about that world whose views I would like to hear on it. You know, I mean, I'd also just like to hear the view, of, uh, the views of Arabic readers about yeah. it, you know, because, I mean, 
yeah, as an Australian, you'll understand the feeling of watching The Simpsons or someone do an Australian episode and just groaning at their kind of rendering of Australia. You know, you, you wonder whether they'd have the same response. Rick. Well, I, I also wonder, even though reading short biographical information about Wilson suggests she's at least quite familiar with parts of, of the Middle yeah. East. Um, well, she I lives want, in well, yeah, 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 I think on and on, you know, like part for part of the year every year. Um, I wonder if part of the reason that she did it, and I'm not trying to put words in her mouth at all, but I wonder if part of the reason she put it in an abstracted state was just that very reason that she was concerned it would look clumsy or uh, pandering, simplistic, something, if she would have said it in, say, you know, you know, the, the Emirates or something. Oh, look, and, you know, given that the thing was delivered in the middle of the Arab Spring, I mean, yeah. the reality was moving faster than the book. You yeah. Know? So, I mean, there's that great danger of, you know, you wouldn't want to write a book about a revolution in Egypt and then have a revolution in Egypt happen while you were doing the copy editing on it. <laughs> which is pretty much like, what, like, which is pretty much what happened, yeah. clearly. Yeah. You know? so, so then do you have that, that issue, which, you know, which confronts all, all of us, which is, you know, if you write on the cusp between the present and the future, it's always going to be incredibly difficult to do it effectively and, and have people actually engage with it meaningfully. Hmm. Uh, yes. yes. I'm, I'm also curious about the, the rhetorical strategy of using an imaginary um, nation and, and, and looking at it from the perspective of if someone wrote uh, a sort of uh, a science fiction or fantasy novel set in an unnamed let's say, Anglo-American-Australian state, which isn't any of those, would I feel like I was being somehow disenfranchised or, or would I read it simply as a rhetorical strategy? Hmm. That's a very good question. I, I wonder about that myself, you know, uh, because I think we would struggle with it a lot more than we struggle with an abstracted Arab state. Hmm. I've always wondered. Although, interestingly, there's a the Peter Carey novel from about 20 years ago called The Unusual Life of Tristan Smith. Mm -hmm. I was sitting in another part of the house, I could look on the shelf and remind myself oh. what its actual title was. The, the Tristan Smith, which is set in a country called Ephica, which is clearly a play on effigy, which is this sort of, it's sort of Australia, it's sort of South Africa. It's a post-colonial society run by Vorstanders who are kind of, um, they're sort of Afrikaans, you know. But yeah, it's interesting because... It doesn't make. It's interesting because it does that thing that good, uh, that kind of good use of that kind of abstraction does, where you end up with a very potent and quite unsettling and unsettled version of reality. You know, I mean, in the same way that something like, you know, intelligent Battlestar Galactica. You know, it, it both is and isn't Iraq. You know, it both is mm -hmm. and isn't America. You know, and and that becomes a very potent kind of thing. I wonder whether in Aleph the Unseen whether it's both abstracted a bit much, but not abstracted enough, if that makes sense. I guess what, yeah, I, and, and that's what I can't understand. I can't get my brain wrapped around is what um, I could ask people. It never occurred to me now. Well, what would a Czechoslovakian or Hungarian reader make of Le Guin's Orsinian tales, which mm. are clearly set in a country more or less where they live, but not quite their country? Hmm. I think it's a really interesting question, you know. I mean, would it look clumsy to them or would it look, as it does to us, you know, suggestive? Mm. Mm. To, to, to switch the, the, the topic around a little bit and back maybe to some of where we've been before, but we'll see. Do you think we worry too much about the difference between science fiction and science fictional? Do I think? Or does, or does Gary think? Okay, Gary, what do you think? I don't. Somebody's going to have to define science fictional for me. I think oh. I know what it means. Science I think fiction I know what it means. I think science fictional is, in terms of the way it tends to be used, it tends to be used, at least in the States, in reviews of books like, I don't know, something like Victor Laval's Big Machine, something which clearly has science fiction elements, elements in it, but which the reviewer doesn't want to admit actually is science fiction. Okay. Yeah, I mean, like, I, I, I think that's true. I mean, look, like, I, I, speaking as a writer, I would generally think of most of what I write as science fictional rather than science fiction if it's sitting in that world. Mm -hmm. um, but that, for me, is because I guess I feel like it's – well, something like my novel, Luke Field, I would think of as science fictional rather than science fiction. It's got very strong science fiction elements in it. 
but I guess they are not the principal thing behind it. You know, it's kind of making use of them to push a series of ideas. Now, I'm, I don't know. I mean, uh, maybe it's a meaningless term because then when you look at a whole lot of books that are science fiction, you could say exactly the same thing about them, you know. So, uh, but I do think there's a fair chunk of work that kind of incorporates elements of science fiction. You know, I mean, you were talking the other week about the Karen Joy Fowler story, the Bar. No, I mean, I, I suspect that's the kind of thing you'd call science fictional rather than science fiction because the science fiction element, I guess, could be excised and the story would work just as well. Well, would it be fair to say that the, that, that the term, as you're using it, would refer to a story which contains science fiction without being contained by it? That's an interesting... Yeah, I mean, I, I like that formulation, but I mean, I'm... I would be resistant to describing. I would be resistant to describing a lot of science fiction as being contained by its own its own parameters. I mean, it seems to me that lots of it is rich and dense and all of those sorts of things. So I, I, so I would resist the description of containment of it. Um, okay. Yeah, I, don't know. I mean, I, I just I think all of this stuff becomes incredibly blurry because there there are these idealized things we talk about. But I'm not. And there was, when there was the use of the term in, in Charles Yu's novel, How to Live in a Science Fictional Universe, which more or less reflects not the fiction itself, but the, the, the setting of the fiction. Um, and the setting of the fiction being uh, essentially some variation of a recognizable realistic setting. In other words, given, and this is one of the things that Gibson is doing all the time now, given the uh, unevenness of the arrival of the future how do we know what science fiction and what isn't these days yeah i mean I, I, it's quite clear that lots of us live in a science fictional world you know i mean it's we are having a three-way conversation on the internet at the moment mm -hmm. you know t right. 10 or 15 years ago this would have been unimaginable yes you know and, and, and my daughter who is 11 routinely because she lives a little bit far away from her best friend uh video chats with her uh, in the evening because that's yeah. easy to do and with her cousin in uh, New Jersey. Yeah. I mean, look, I, I don't know. I'm not clear that it's... Uh, yeah, I suspect Gary's right in his first formulation, which is one of those mm. things we say when we want to talk about something that we don't want to kind of, uh, I, I guess, kind of corral it into a box. Well, no, you I know? think there are there are writers, and, 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 uh, and James, you might very well be among uh, them. I'm thinking of Richard Powers in the United States, who's written... Galileo 2.2 and so forth, that uh, the science fiction community has paid almost no attention to at all. Oh, a book like how did how did Generosity not win the Hugo Award? How did the Echo Maker not win the Hugo? Award? Yeah, they are exactly. Brilliant, brilliant books. Well, because well, you know why, but yes, yes, <laughs> yeah. you know, uh, because you you have to be the right kind of the book in the right kind of place and engaged in the right kind of way. Mm. But, but I mean, I think Gary's right. I mean, how is Richard Powers not lauded as a kind of hero of the science fiction world? Well, well, similarly, what was the uh, the uh, Kessel and Kelly anthology, Gary, where, uh, where they were postulating the future based well, on the secret history of science fiction, where they yeah. were looking at writers like uh, Powers and Lethem and Chabon and uh, so forth, and saying, well. Uh, essentially, science fiction has merged with the mainstream. The point of the argument that they did not take that argument to the next step, that science fiction arguably has merged with the mainstream in any number of, of areas, but it's not acknowledged by the mainstream and it's not acknowledged by the science fiction community. Which so is a real Powers, hmm. I would be willing to bet that if you talk to nine out of ten science fiction readers about Richard Powers, they will think about the guy who did covers for Ballantine books in the 1950s. I, I, in fact, was on Twitter the other day, and Paul McCauley tweeted a link to a, a range of trippy Richard Powers covers. I was like, yeah. really? Are they different to the ones I've got? I clicked on I'm like, oh, hang on, no, the illustrator room. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. about two days ago. But, I mean, there is – one of the things I think is interesting about a lot of the writers, you know, in what you'd call the mainstream, like people like Siobhan, Letham to an extent. It's Leakham, isn't it, I think? Or Leakham. I'm not even quite sure how to say it, but – is it often the idea of science fiction they're engaged with, did you know Diaz, the same, is 
a historicised science fiction. So they're engaged with the science fiction that they read as kids in the 1970s and 1960s. You know, so it's a, in a sense, they're trading in a kind of nostalgia version of science fiction. I mean, it's one thing that's very striking in Chabon's essays about genre is that uh, Atwood as well, you know, their ideas of what science fiction is seem to me to bear no resemblance to what it actually is. So you feel like it's it's a, it's a nostalgic cultural abstraction of when they encountered it in their youth, and so they're superheroes they, and rocket ships and yeah, you know, yeah. I don't know. I mean, I'm Gary, I'd be curious. Well, Margaret Atwood made that point very clear in, in her book, uh, which which I think you also reviewed, that her reading of science fiction uh, was based on what appeared to be a somewhat idealized memory of growing up in the woods in Canada and having nothing but comic books and a few Ray Bradbury books around. Um, and then uh, maybe that did shape her as a writer in some way. That seems to be what some, something she's very affectionate about. And then she apparently didn't read any science fiction for the next several decades until she discovered Le Guin. Um, that's a perfectly legitimate way of using science fiction as part of your sort of cultural uh, DNA, as part of your background. Mm. Uh, it doesn't necessarily qualify you to write a whole book about science fiction because you've basically missed 50 years of it in there somewhere. <laughs> mm. Yeah, I'm, sorry, I'm not saying there's anything illegitimate with it, about what Chabon and others are doing. I just I think it's interesting that often when I read them, what they're really writing about is comic books from the 60s. You know, yeah. and they true. don't seem to me to be engaged with the current world of that stuff. I mean, I think Edward's book is just bizarre. I mean, you know, you write a book all about science fiction where it becomes quite clear that not only have you not read any of it, but you haven't read any, you know, she hasn't read any of the criticism either. I mean, she, you know, she, she could go to Wikipedia and it would tell her that her definitions are wrong. You know, and I think I actually said when I reviewed it, look, it's fine. You can argue for you can argue to revise definitions, but you need to be bringing to bear a new set of definitions that actually give something new rather than take something away. And and her definitions seem to me to take away. Mm -hmm. But I think she was trying to make a plea for herself as not intolerant. Um, and and, and the, book, the book was oddly intended as an appreciation. Um, mm. But I think you're right. And I think this may be true of Michael Chabon. It may be true of Jonathan Lethem. It may be true of any number of writers. Juno Diaz, uh, and I've talked to at least a couple of these people, and it's th th there's in the case of Juno Diaz an enormous affection for science fiction. Hmm. But I found he, he's, he's read the magazine I write for, Locus. He, he tries to keep up with oh, it. Oh, that's knows. interesting. Then. Um, Doris Lessing turned out to be when I chatted with her a fan of Greg Bear. <laughs> Who would have guessed? Yeah, I must say that wouldn't have occurred to me. Ah. <laughs> <sighs> Let me ask you this as we draw towards the close of what's been a fascinating conversation. Do we need someone to edit the Penguin Book of the Future? Oh, no, that would be fun. Wouldn't it? Mm. Oh, no, that would be really fun. <laughs> <laughs> um, is, is, go ahead. I was, oh, was going to ask, is there is there a division? Because one of the things that's always fascinated me when you look at something like the Penguin Book of the Future, I think of two things. I obviously think of science fiction, and I think of Futurism, which used to be a very trendy intellectual thing here in the States, and there were books of futurism, and there was Alvin Toffler, and there was um, Robert Theobald, uh, and I don't know if that still goes on, but it, I used to love tracking Futurist magazine. I used to read the Futurist magazine because they were always either dead wrong about something, or they had done some massive mathematical study which came out exactly with the same idea that Alfred Bester came up with in 1953. I, I must. I was watching a lecture by David Brin recently. He's a futurist as well, and I mean, I just, I, I find. Well, in fact, I read Existence, his most recent novel as well, recently, which is, you know, clearly in lots of ways a, a fictional rendering of his futurist thinking. Mm -hmm. And I just, it, it seems to me to be, there's something just kind of strange about it because it's always. It always seems to me to privilege the the visions that consistently privilege the rational over the real. If that makes sense, you know. Because the fact of the matter is yes. that when development is messy and organic and stupid and perverse and all kinds of things, you know. Whereas they they seem to want to kind of bring to bear, you know, the tools of the intellect on it. I mean, I must say, I I, I thought something similar about the end of twenty three twelve, which is a book where. You know, I just I, I, the thing I didn't believe about it, I guess, at the end was 
this kind of it was kind of a future imagined by scientists in California. You know, and the yeah. problem is that the future might be imagined by scientists in California, but it will be made by the people in, you know, Mumbai and Beijing, you know, and mm. and Rio. Do, do you know what I mean? Yes. So, I mean, it, will, it, it won't be the world that they're imagining. It will be a kind of much more complex and difficult thing. An Indo-Chinese-African future rather than just simply a nice, neat, tidy, technical Western future. Yeah, to go back yeah, to go back to what we were talking about earlier, it's it's, it's true that Ian McDonald has, has has been talking about that, and uh, and Jeff Ryman has been talking about that, and Paolo Bacigalupi, but all the writers we can name who are doing that, uh, with the possible exception of Nnedi Okorafor, are basically Anglo-American European writers. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, hopefully that will change. And maybe hopefully someone will do the Penguin Book of the Future, because it would be interesting to look at things like the ways the concept of the future have changed over time. That would be a fascinating book. So I'm sitting here thinking, can I write up a pitch for it afterwards? <laughs> <laughs> I think it. Well, maybe we shouldn't be talking about it on the on the yeah, live of the podcast. Like, line, actually. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. I think we probably should. I think there's all sorts of fascinating things to do. But since this is still the Cood Street podcast houry thing, we should probably begin to wind it up. I'd like to thank you very much for joining. Oh, and I don't want to ask you before I say goodbye. Since you are one of our, our token mainstream people, James, as well, and one of the people I turn to, and in, in case anybody on the podcast has not you know, got enough to read and hasn't bought any books late, lately that are worth running out for, tell me, what mainstream books are we missing? I mean, I've, I've got here, I've got the, the Michael Chabon book, Telegraph Avenue, which I don't think you particularly liked. No, I didn't like And that. kind of put me Many off people. reading now. <laughs> Look, in its defense, many people liked it. I didn't. <laughs> and, and I started to read because I didn't want to read a, another book that was recommended to me, uh, the new uh, Ian McEwan, though you'll be horrified to know it's the only Ian McEwan book that I've tried to read. No, oh, don't read it then. <laughs> oh, no, read, read Atonement if you've got to read one of them. Okay. And uh, my friend, uh, one of my friends has recommended a book, HHHHH by L- Laurent Binet. The Binet book, yeah, yeah, which um, is really interesting. I think it's, you've got, uh, my, I saw... Gabriel K. recommended yeah. on Twitter. I look, I liked it. I think it is. I some, know some people think it was wonderful. I thought it was too long. I thought it was a book that spent 400 pages saying what it effectively said by page 150. Um, but it's a very interesting book. Look, the, I've spent a long time trying to convince. It seems to me if you're someone who read Game of Thrones, you should read Bring Up uh, Wolf Hall and Bring Up the Bodies, yeah. the two Hilary Mantel books, which yeah. would seem to me to be books mm. that that have a huge amount of those kinds of audiences. I liked the James Meek book that I mentioned before, The Heart Broke In, which is yeah. not entirely successful, but is very interesting and I think would probably be interesting to readers of science fiction because it's, it's it's sitting on the edge of that. What else have I read recently that I thought was good? Um, I disliked the Karen Thompson Walker book, The Age of Miracles, intensely. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, many people love it. Have you read this Zadie, Zadie Smith book? End no, up? in fact, I've got it sitting upstairs. I haven't read it yet. I, I just had I had to um, do a review of the book of shortlist. I've just spent a lot of time in the last few weeks reading those six books. Um, the Lauren Groff book, Arcadia, I think is terrific. Mm-hmm. Um, two others. One which I think a lot of science fiction readers would like, which is a book called The Orphan Master's Son by Adam Johnson, which is a strange political satire set in North Korea mm-hmm. and um, I th- look I think goes off a bit in the second half but the first half is quite remarkable uh, and the other one I was going to suggest has of course fled my brain in the last 30 seconds uh, it was um, oh look it's not a science fiction book at all but one of the best books I read last year was by a woman called Dana Spiotta who's an American writer and it's called Stone Arabia um, which is a really clever kind of dissection of celebrity and I guess the kind of textures of contemporary life. I thought it, I thought it was really terrific. Okay. Hmm. Well, yeah, how's that for a list of books? That's great. I mean, I've only got to read them all between here and Dubai. Well, we're here in Toronto, so I can then sound halfway intelligent over, over lunch with, with Guy K when I meet with him because... Yeah, I'll... The Yellow Birds, the Kevin Powell's book about Iraq, about Iraq is very good as well, and the Juno Diaz book is very good, and short, which we like in a book. I love short books. I, I, 
Nothing makes me happy. The, the thing that, would, that, that put me off reading HHHH more than anything else was that there was 256 chapters in it. I was just like, oh. That's why I haven't read the, the, the rest of the Game of Thrones books either. Because <laughs> they're, they're, yeah, they're terrifyingly uh, long. They I are. <laughs> but, you know, it took me a long time, I have to say. <laughs> and were they terrifyingly long, James? Uh, look, they are. I think they're amazing. Um, I think that the best one is the third, and the fourth and the fifth are less good than... The fourth is not wildly good, and the fifth is better than the fourth, but not as good as the third. Um, uh, but they are a pretty remarkable kind of object. Um, you, you, I mean, a kind of, as a kind of thing, as an edifice, they are quite quite remarkable and consistently deeply, deeply engaging. Well, well, let me ask this as a final question. Do you think we're going to see a new James Bradley book in 2013? I wish we were. Um, no, it, look, it'll be done for 2014, I think. Interestingly, it's a climate change book, so many of the things we were talking about... <laughs> well, I look forward to it. I do. Thank you so much for joining us. I've enjoyed it a great deal. Thank and I hope we get to talk to you again sometime soon. I hope we get to see you at a convention somewhere. I mean, you're not coming to Toronto, so... Uh, no, there... I'm not going to any conventions this year. Um, Do you get to the States at all uh, frequently, uh, James? Uh, I hopefully will be in the States next year. Um, oh, okay. Just not this year. I was. I am hoping also to go to a World Fantasy Convention next year in Brighton. In Brighton. Mm. We'll, see, we'll see you there. Hopefully I'll see you in Perth early next year, though. I will see you in Perth early next Yay, year. Yay! Twitter. Okay. Thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, James Bradley blogs at cityoftongues.com. His most recent book is The Penguin Book of the Ocean. His most recent novel is The Resurrectionist. Thank you again. And Gary, as always, uh, we will be getting in touch as we approach Toronto, Toronto World Fantasy. Where we're going to record 600 million billion podcasts. Yes, everybody at World Fantasy is going to have a separate podcast recorded during that week. That's a fearsome number. And then we can take Christmas off, right? Yes. No, Yay! No, no. I love Christmas off. No, no, you can't have Christmas off. Oh, shut up. Okay. Well, anyway, thank you very much. I'll talk to you next week, Gary. Talk to you next week. Okay, bye.